1: Well, hello. Welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast. Single Tongue coming at you again for uh, another solo episode. So you uh, have an intimate morning with Chris. What What's on the agenda today? Well, uh, last time we got together for a solo podcast, we started reading, uh, well, not reading, but discussing Hegel's um, Phenomenology of Spirit. Really, really interesting book, one that I avoided reading and, um, sort of forcing myself to do it. Like I mentioned, uh, to bring it to you guys. And, um, I thought maybe what's well, interesting. Cause I wasn't sure if I was going to read the whole thing, if I wanted to do multiple episodes on it. And, and I think where I ended up landing on this was serendipitous. Like these things sometimes are where I was listening to another podcast uh, conversation with Ian McGilchrist, who we've talked about many times, who I love, um, psychologist. He wrote the book "Master and His emissary," describing the two different hemispheres of the brain and how they work, um, and how they work together to create, you know, our, our perceptions and our, our, you know, our reality. And he speaks really eloquently and beautifully. And it just happened, so happened that um, this podcast with McGilchrist was talking along the same lines as Hegel, in a way that I thought was interesting. And, in fact, you guys may remember when we were talking about Hegel last time, um, in a nutshell, what Hegel was describing was our experience of being self-conscious and what it seems like. And if you, if you remember, the way he put it was like, like being self-conscious is like being two consciousnesses simultaneously. And he explained it like um well, the way that we the way that we can consider ourselves kind of like a third party, so for instance, I'm looking at a group big group of strangers uh I'm people watching at the mall or something um I can look at those people i can I can judge them, you know i can uh i can um uh, speculate on what they're doing, why they're doing it, what what kind of people they are based upon how they're dressed and how they look. Just the way that we're critical of people, the way that we evaluate people at, when they are a third person, when there's somebody else from the outside, and I'm looking at you from the outside, making all of my making all of my judgments. But we can do that with ourselves, and we do do that with ourselves, and it's not a, it's not clear at all that any other creature does that. You know, even conscious creatures like animals, you know, complex animals like your pet dog. There's no evidence really that they do that. But we do. We look at ourselves like an object. So, so what Hegel meant when he said we've got, you know, we're like two consciousnesses at, at once. What he meant was that we're the subject and we're the object at the same time. So we're consciousness as subject, that's the observer, the person looking, the person making the judgments, right? But we're also the object, the person that's being looked at, the person that's being judged. So we're the observed and the observer to ourselves all at once. And it's really unusual, and if it doesn't seem to exist apart from human beings, and if you nobody ever put it that way, you may never even have considered it. You know, is it fair? to conceptualize that as being kind of two consciousnesses at, at once. You know, they're they're separate, but they're unified at the same time. So they're two selves. They're seen as a separation of itself into two opposing or contrasting opposites. And those opposites are subject and object, something like that. And the experience of ourselves being self-conscious is something like, this is the way Hegel puts it, something like, Shifting perspectives or shifting identities between the two all the time. Sometimes subject, sometimes object. Um, You know, the reality may be that we're both all the time. But something about our consciousness shifts perspectives so that we can see ourselves as the observer, looking out through through our own eyes, or we can see ourselves as the observed, the thing that we're looking at, the thing that we're observing. And it's very strange. Um... It turns out that when McGilchrist talks about psychology, talks about the human brain and yeah. the, the the two hemispheres of the brain, he talks about it in very similar ways um, to, to Hegel. And it's you know it's interesting because Hegel actually calls these these two parts of our consciousness master and bondsman. So one of them is the master. That's the observer and one of them is the bondsman, and that's the observed, you know, subject and object. It turns out McGilchrist has almost identical language when he's talking about the two hemispheres of the brain. You know, his book, his famous book, was called The Master and His Emissary. And, and what McGilchrist was talking about, when what he was referring to, master is the right hemisphere, and emissary is the left hemisphere. And then we get to Hegel. Hegel, however you say it, I'm going to mispronounce that for sure. When we get to Hegel, he calls it master and bondsman. So Hegel's describing consciousness, and McGilchrist is describing the functioning of our brain. And so that you can imagine, those things are probably pretty closely correlated. And maybe that explains, you know, the fact that Hegel and McGilchrist seem to have come to the same conclusion, one of them from a philosophical perspective and one of them from a psychological perspective. It's pretty interesting. So I'll tell you a little bit about this McGilchrist podcast that got me. We're going to be talking as much about McGilchrist as we will Hegel today. But this is the Hegel part two, so deal with it. All right, so the podcast is called the Ralston College Podcast. It was episode 23. It was called The Coincidence of Opposites. And, um, the host was Stephen Blackwood and he's, I don't know, president or something of the college. And he has Ian McGilchrist on to talk about, I think a new book. I think in fact, it was a new book that he's got coming out. But this lecture, mini lecture is called the coincidence of opposites. And what McGilchrist is going to talk about is opposites and what that means and how, and how we have these misconceptions about what that means and as I'm listening to this podcast, it's getting clearer and clearer to me, like like recognizing the things that he's saying are really very much along the lines of something that Jordan Peterson might say, certainly many things that Hegel said, and many things that I say. And I thought that was interesting. So I'm going to tie this together with a little bit more Hegel for you today. So I want to describe to you, in my, in my words, what McGilchrist means when he says the coincidence of opposites, okay. So this is silly, but let's break it down. So coincidence, you know, <laughs> I don't know what comes to mind. What What do you think that word means? Coincidence, you know, it's like it's a strange occurrence. It's an unlikely occurrence. You know, it, it, it's it's um, the probability of something happening. Um, you know, or, or multiple things happening exactly that way is is is. Um, you know, uh, hard to believe, or, you know, it's a coincidence, right? But that's not really what it means. In fact, what it, what it, what it really means is something to do with two things happening together, co-together, incidents, right? So two things happening together, the coincidence of opposites, okay? So opposites are things that always occur together. You can't have one without the other, love and marriage, you know the song, all of these sorts of things, light and dark, you can't have one without the other, because one by itself has no meaning, and there's a really interesting um, quote we talked about before from the Tao Te Ching, uh, the, uh, the Taoist holy book from China, and it says something like, so I'm going I'm to butcher it now, something like, you can't have beauty without ugliness but it was a much more beautiful, much more beautifully put. Um, And the idea is, is exactly that. If everybody you ever meet is beautiful, you have no conception of ugliness, but you also have no conception of beauty. You need the contrast. Right? You, you don't have any idea what beauty even means until you have an example of something who's not beautiful. Right, You're looking at a thousand beautiful people your whole life, everyone's beautiful, and suddenly one ugly person shows up and you're like, oh, this is possible. I like the other one better. I like the beautiful one better. Until you see the ugly one, you don't have any idea of what beauty even means. It just You just take it for granted. It goes without saying. Something like that. All right, and the next thing I want to do I want to do just a couple of definitions, uh, just recap. One of them we talked about last time. So when Hegel uses the word spirit, he actually means consciousness, and it's a little confusing, and it always is when we have these sorts of conversations because the language gets gets muddy and confusing. Um, so by consciousness, what he really means is something like intellect, reason, and awareness, you know, all the things that we would associate with consciousness, you know, um, more or less. So spirit means consciousness. Um, the other thing that Hegel says, he uses the word eminence, and it's pretty interesting. Uh eminence, he he uses that to mean in itself. So something that is in itself uh is imminent. Um it, it, he'll say things like in itselfness, and that's what I mean. It's like really, really strange the lesson with the language. Um uh, but the idea is something like this. Um, I don't really really know what direction to take this. Being in itself, like consciousness, we find ourselves in ourself. It's it's related to this idea of being, this philosophical idea of being. You know, you you hear that word being. Um, it's like a like a state of being. You know, um, it's sort of like the place you are. Um, but then you're also a being. You know, you're a being within being, if that makes sense, and so that maybe gives you some idea of what he means by in itself or in itselfness, something that exists in itself, and I think that's interesting. It has some sort of mystic implications uh, because the way I look at God is something like a pattern within a pattern or an infinite, um, you know, an infinite regression like that, some sort of fractal uh, thing, and um, you know. If, if God, to my way of thinking, is um, at least partly all of material reality and we exist in <laughs> the cosmos, right? If you take the cosmos to be something like God and we exist in it, you can kind of see from a, from a cosmic perspective that there's a something like eminence, you know? We are in it, you know? And if we believe that consciousness and the cosmos are the same, which is mystical and it's getting out there, but it's something I happen to believe, then you can understand where I'm going. So eminence being in itself, consciousness within consciousness, that that's something like what we are. In fact, that is, in my opinion, what we are, being within being, a pattern within a pattern, something like that. And that's what, that's what Hegel means when he says eminence. Okay. All right. So let's get into McGilchrist talking about opposites. So why why opposites? You know, when McGilchrist talks about the hemispheres of the brain, uh, he talks about them as though they are structured very, very differently. Um, they do very different things, right? So that doesn't really surprise us. There's something like opposites, and the way they work, the way our brains work, really has it has this interesting thing where. One hemisphere of the brain at times inhibits the other, like stops the other from doing what it does um, so there there is a tension between these these hemispheres, like a tension between opposites, so this is kind of the perspective that McGilchrist is, is going to be coming coming to us with trying to explain opposites to having having you know been a psychologist his whole his whole pro- professional career having thought long and hard about all of these things and how the brain works and how consciousness manifests and all that sort of thing and he comes to the conclusion that opposites are fundamentally important and it, so it's fundamentally important that we understand what opposites are and this is why he goes into it partly to to help explain his uh, ideas on on the brain and and you know how they work but more than that applying that same principle to the greater world you know physics and and all sorts of other things so that he's pointing out that you what you see in the brain you see all over the world you see all over nature and it's really it's really interesting it, it raises questions why why is the brain? Functioning as a tension between between opposites, and then when you look at how the cosmos works, you see that same pattern over and over and over, a pattern within a pattern. So let's get to it. What does McGilchrist have to say on opposites? All right. Quote number one. He says. He says we fail to understand that things and their opposites are not as irreconcilable and far apart from one another as they might seem. It's imagined in our love of straight lines, he says. You think, as far as you project them in one direction, they get further and further away from the end of the line in the opposite, as we call it, direction. Then he says, since my teens, I've thought that this is not actually the case and that opposites tended eventually to coincide. So it's interesting to me that he brings up our love of straight lines. What what does he mean by that? He's talking about how, well, you know, we build buildings. You know, we we make everything in straight lines. We build roads. You know, we want to have the shortest route from one spot to another. It's a straight line. Um, But we also see that with time. You know, time moves in one direction. Um, So these are all perceptions that we have, whether they're right or not. uh, I don't know. But it has something to do with what he calls our love of straight lines, that we see the world as um, progressing or regressing, as something like moving in one direction or the other, where there's lots of other cultures that have have considered, at least time, for instance, as something that's cyclical. You know, it's not a straight line. It's a circle. It's a, connection, a connected circle that goes round and round. It has no beginning and no end. A straight line has a distinct beginning and an end. Um, and, and, you know, even if it goes on forever and it doesn't have a beginning or an end, it certainly doesn't circle back on itself. And there's a different philosophy. There's a different perspective, you know, when, when something like the image of a straight line is your guiding principle, it's very different from, from somebody who thinks more cyclically. Um, so McGillchrist doesn't put a lot of, a lot of faith in this idea of opposites that, that we, that we tend to never question and the way that we f- the way that we phrase them the way that we understand them is something like on two ends of a straight line where never the two shall ever meet something like that he's saying maybe the truth is something like the cyclical model you know opposites always meet it's not that they never meet they always meet it's like they're 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 a continuum, and I've said that before on the podcast. That opposites are something like a whole, a continuum that make up a whole. You can't have one without the other. You can't have beauty without ugliness. You can't have light without darkness. You can't have heat without cold. You know, and it, for all the same reasons we talked about before. Taken by themselves, one side of that opposite, it actually has no meaning, and it maybe it has no existence. It needs to coexist and coincide with its opposite. That's the thing that, that is. That's the thing that exists. It's really interesting. It's a strange way of thinking about it. And then he, he also says, what we call opposites are often facets of one and the same thing. So he said exactly what I just said. And then he gives a couple of quotes. He does a lot of this, uh, McGilchrist, which is nice. You know, It like gives some context to what he's saying by by letting you know that important people or smart people thought similar things before him, so it just sort of like seems like evidence uh, to support the arguments. The first quote he brings up is a guy named C.S. Peirce. Um, maybe I'm embarrassed to say I don't know who that is, but he's an American philosopher. Um, and he said, A thing without opposites, ipso facto, does not exist. Existence lies in Opposition. Existence lies in opposition. That's interesting. All right, the next quote he gives is by Niels Bohr. We've talked about him before. You guys may remember one of the founding fathers of quantum physics. And he said, It is a hallmark of any great truth that its negation is also a deep truth. That's interesting. When he says its negation, he, he means its opposite. So the hallmark of any great truth is that its opposite is also a deep truth. So you see, there, even even to Niels Bohr, there's a connection. Um, there's a connection between opposites, an, an important, essential connection. And the same thing for for C.S. Peirce. So McGilchrist goes on, he says, the things we see as opposites often are not opposites at a deep level. Bohr saw more and more that the deeper you went into the structure of reality, the more it was the case that a thing and its opposite could be true at the same time. He goes on, another theme that is important in my work is the creative nature of resistance. Nothing can be created, nothing can come into being without resistance. Okay, so you guys may have heard this resistance term thrown around. Um, What comes to my mind when I hear that word is creative resistance. There's been a lot of people that have written about like, like writer's block or something, or, you know, anybody who's doing creative things who runs into a wall, even just thinking about procrastination, that's something that we all, we all kind of understand. That's, that's resistance. It's resistance to doing whatever it is that you know you need to do or want to do. Um, You know, it's, it's not like we always run up against it or that it's always the same. Sometimes it's weaker, sometimes it's stronger, but but you get the, that idea. Think about times when you've had to do something or needed to, to do something, and you just tried to find anything you could do to avoid it. That's resistance, okay? And it often comes up with when we're talking about creative things, like like I said, like writing. Uh, and the the idea is that there's pushback. I don't know where it comes from. Maybe it's our psyche or something. You know, you just distractions or ADD or whatever you want to call it. Um, so maybe maybe I'll put it this way, to put it in terms of opposites, because this is what we're talking about when we talk about resistance. There's tension between opposites. So in this example, maybe it's the tension between doing something and not doing something. You know? They're opposites. So this tension is really important. And it's what it's what McGillchrist calls resistance. And he also says that it's necessary for anything to be created. And that goes beyond being creative in terms of making a piece of art or writing a piece of you know literature or something. Um, well, I, I, I'll, I'll save that for just a bit because we're going to get into it. All right, so then he goes back to talking about the hemispheres of the brain. So McGilchrist's bread and butter. He says, the two brain hemispheres illustrate something rather important, that they work together but apart. They cooperate by opposing one another <laughs> that's interesting right they cooperate by opposing one another um, this is this is the notion that I brought up earlier that that one hemisphere of the brain w- will actually inhibit the other one and that it, it basically says hey stop doing what you're doing and that's that's necessary because if it doesn't inhibit it it just keeps doing what it's doing and you and and your brain w- won't be able to function properly you need both the right and the left hemisphere so they 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 work together, but apart, they cooperate by opposing one another. So you can see what he means when he says that that this resistance is creative. So we're talking about cooperation. you know, what are you cooperating towards towards some end, you know, so, so, something creative. Um, and that's done by opposing one another. That's interesting. Um, he goes on, And that is very much the way that nature works. We've brought, excuse me, we've bought into a myth that all the history of nature is one of competition, but it's as much or more a history of cooperation, and the coming together of competition and cooperation produces what I call collaboration. That's interesting, right? The idea that competition—you think about you know natural selection you think about biological evolution survival of the fittest right competition it's everyone every man for himself you know tooth and claw competition but then he says th- then he brings up cooperation so working together right so you've got competition which we we again we tend to think and he calls it a myth we tend to think that competition is is you know man against man you know uh a zero sum sort of sort of situation um, but that's but that's not exactly true and he says when you take competition and cooperation together, like what you see with the the right and left hemispheres of the brain, what you end up with is something called collaboration so so it's like there's this tension between opposites between competition and cooperation, and together they create collaboration so there's times where the opposites will um They'll, they'll hamper one another, you know, they'll inhibit one another. And then there's times where they'll enhance one another. They'll work together. And that's what I mean. You know, it's give and take. It's this tension between opposites that make them the whole. Think about like a semicircle. You got one half of the circle and then the other half of the circle. And they're always pushing and pulling against each other and moving the boundaries around. But they're always a circle, right? They're one thing. The opposites are one thing. And then he goes on back to the brain. He says, and the two hemispheres need to inhibit one another to inform one another. Ooh, they need to stand back and away from one another and at times to work in unison. They have an interesting relationship, which is oppositional, but by no means contradictory. That's interesting. He he says that when he's talking about the brain, that at times the hemispheres have to inhibit one another to inform one another. So you're pushing back, you're inhibiting, you're stopping them, right? That's, that's the combative part. Um, but you're doing that only to inform them. So that's the cooperative part. You know, that's the collaboration part. And that they need both to function. So this is what we see in our brains. We need this, this tension of opposites between left and right hemisphere just to have our brains function the way they do. And in fact, without that, they don't function at all. It's amazing. He explains, the right hemisphere understands and sees things that the left hemisphere doesn't. And for that reason, the left hemisphere should always be in service to the right hemisphere. It makes a good servant, but a very poor master. So here's, this is where we get to the master and emissary. The right hemisphere sees things the left doesn't. So it's the master. The left is the emissary or the servant. But again, you need both. They operate as a whole. You can't have one without the other. And it's a, it's a funny way of putting it because you can't have a servant without a master. You can't have a master without a servant, right? It's interesting. All right, he says He says, everything that exists could, could be thought of as a form of energy. He says, after all, one of the most famous equations in the world, E equals mc squared, tells us that energy and mass are interconvertible. Energy is always characterized by the coming together of apparent opposites, as in the positive and negative poles of electricity, or of a magnet, or the merging of male and female gametes at the origin of new life. That's beautiful. So this first bit about the world, about the world being, um, about everything, you know, uh, you know, could be thought of as a form of energy. I think that's beautiful. It's also very mystical. And then he uses as evidence E equals mc square, which I've done before myself. I think that's, I think that's beautiful. It, what it does is it shows that, that f- the laws of physics prove that matter and energy are essentially the same. And if everything is made from matter and, and, and energy, and that's what makes the whole cosmos tick, everything is really one substance. Everything. And that's a very mystical thing. You know, God is one or a one with the universe. You know, what are we one with? What are we one of? Apparently energy, you know? And this is the point he's making. It's really, really interesting. And he, and he says, but look, even when you take energy as an example, it's always characterized by the coming together of opposites, opposites in a union. And he talks about the negative and positive poles of, of uh, you know, electricity or of a magnet. You need both. You don't have magnetism. You don't have electricity without the, the negative and the positive poles together. And then he says, what about, what about the origins of new life? When the male and the female gametes, when the sperm and the ova and the, and the ov- uh, come together and create uh, a new life. That here you have opposites coming together. So everywhere you look, when you look at the you know the fundamental forces in nature... Or when you look at you know, the origins of life, that all of that stuff is, is illustrating the same thing that the brain illustrates, that they work strictly as a tension between opposites, that you need them both or you have nothing. All right, then he adds something interesting. He says, from all parts of the world that I know through anthropology, there is a myth of two opposite forces that need one another. So now he brings in the literary, the mythological, you know, complement to this stuff. It's like we've talked about, you know, we've talked about this in in terms of the brain. We've talked about it in terms of kind of these fundamental um, uh, forces of physics. But you can also see it in our myths and in our religion. And he brings up the yin and the yang symbol from China, which we've talked about before. But you you get it. I mean, one side black, one side white. They're in a circle. They're in, you know, they're in... Um, balance with one another, they're in continual tension with one another and you can't have one without the other and if that seems like that's too distant of an analogy for you, think about God and the devil same same thing we've got the ultimate abstract power of good and the ultimate abstract power of evil and if you know if if you don't have one without the other, what do you have right from a religious perspective, God and the devil are at odds. You know, righteousness and evil are at odds, and uh, and you can't have one without the other, right? If you don't, if you don't have the devil and you don't have evil, what's the purpose of what's the pers- purpose of God from a myth from a moral mythological perspective? If if righteousness has nothing to fight against, is just, is righteousness even a thing? Doesn't even exist. That, that's the point. You need them both, and he says one of the ways of looking at the whole creative cosmos is as an endless unfolding of individuation out of union. So I would say the very drive of the cosmos is about distinction without separation. That's a powerful sentence. So he said, look, you can look at the cosmos as an endless unfolding of individuation out of union. And so he what he's describing here is opposites when he says individuation he's talking about particular things and when he says when particular things come out of union he's talking about the oneness the wholeness the completeness and whatever that is it's not individuated it's not particularized it's 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 all together everything all together and you can take from that specific things you can make specific things out of it so you've got in you know The unfolding of individuation, as he puts it, is like the multiplicity of the world. All of the different things that exist. All the differences between things. And all of those things come out of union. They come out of the place where it began. The place where things were all the same. Like, Like the example of energy we gave earlier. Everything's energy is all the same. And from that we get all these many things. It just fractures and individuates into all these particular things. And so those are opposites. The many... And the one. And he says that the cosmos itself could be seen as exactly the tension between those opposites. The many and the one. Jordan Peterson would say, order and chaos. And And then he ends that by saying, I would say the very drive of the cosmos is about distinction without separation. So you get the individuation Within the unity. So all of the many that we're talking about, those things exist and come from and exist within the one. They're not separate from the one. So that, that's, that's the important thing. When you're looking at opposites, you cannot think of them as separate. We always do. Because they're like, couldn't be more different from one another. We want to we put them in separate camps and separate categories. He's saying that's, that's actually the myth we've all bought into. That's the problem. You've got to stop thinking that way. Opposites are not like that. They're distinct, yes, but without separation. So think about the circle again. Two two semicircles come together. They're distinct, but they're never apart. They exist they exist only in that in that wholeness in the circle. Then he references some ancient Greek philosophy which I love. He brings up Heraclitus and he says Heraclitus said many things that are relevant, but I'll just mention two. Here's the first quote. Heraclitus said They do not understand how a thing agrees at variance with itself. It is an attunement turning back on itself, like that of a bow and a lyre. So he brings up this example of a bow and a lyre. This is a musical instrument. So if you think about like a a violin, let's say, something like that, or harp, uh, this is the kind of thing he has in mind. And he's talking about how people can't understand how things can be at odds with itself and at at the same time uh, agree with itself, at the same time be a whole, how opposites can be a whole. And he says it's an attunement turning back on itself. And that 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 rings of that eminence idea that we talked about earlier, being in yourself, a pattern within a pattern. And then he brings up this specific example of a musical instrument. And so McGilchrist says, the image of the bow and the lyre are simple and very beautiful. He says, the ends of the lyre string are pulled apart and effort is put into tautening the string. He says, you might think, why pull in opposite directions? Why not just simplify and not pull at all? But then the string goes slack and there is no note that comes forth from the string of the lyre. Its existence depends on exactly this balance of pulling in opposite directions. So the example here is a a musical note that can only exist when the lyre is being pulled, the string is being pulled in opposite directions. You have to keep it taut, you have to keep that string just the right level of tightness, and then you play it, and then you get the note. But you can't do that without pulling and pushing. You need opposite forces to get that note to come from the lyre. And he's pointing this out as an example, as an everyday example of, of this, you know, foundational principle and then and then the second saying of heraclitus and and i'll I'll give you the quote here he says graspings whole and not whole convergent divergent consonant dissonant from all things one and from one thing all i love that i love that for lots of reasons but also makes me think of um the three musketeers. Um, all for one and one for all. Uh, so what does he mean by this? So he means that the one and the many bring one another forth into being. This is what McGulchrist says. He says, together, generating the reality that has this structure at its core. So now he's saying, he's saying reality itself has this structure at its core. Something like the tension between opposites. All right, he says... We've discovered that not only can small elements in matter manifest either as a wave or as a particle that seem contrary types of elements, but can manifest as a wave and a particle simultaneously. So he's talking about quantum physics again. He's saying, look, on the quantum level, these these basic elements, these these quantum particles, they exist as particles, but also as waves. And it's not just one or the other, but kind of both at the same time. And a particle and a wave are, are... sort of opposite uh, states of being. One of them is more like probability, and one of them is more like a certainty. You know, a particle is like a dot. It's a certain dot. It's got, it's here, it's there. You know, it's got a certain momentum. It's got a certain position. It's, it's, a, it's a solid thing. Uh, a wave is not like that. A wave kind of moves in all directions and exists everywhere in this, in this, in this cloud of probability. So these are opposite things. It's like the actual and the potential. And they're constantly opposed, they're, they're in tension with each other. And that's a good example because you can see that in all sorts of ways. Potential is always becoming actual, you know? <laughs> you know. We have an idea and we bring it into being. You know, Potential is always becoming actual. So you can kind of see that you know, maybe more realistically as a whole. And he goes on, he says, Here again, it's a very important idea that we don't have to see one and then the other but see them nested within one another, the, the wave and the particle. So this is another idea that, that harkens back to this eminence that's going to that's gonna come up. The particle exists within the wave, the wave exists within the particle. He's saying this is the way si- that science understands it now, that they're nested within one another. That's, that reminds me of that in-itselfness, the eminence idea that Hegel talks about, in itself, nested within one another. It's exactly the same thing. He says, thus we're used to thinking of the individual and the general, the temporal and the eternal, the embodied and disembodied as exclusive pairings, but they are present simultaneously in one another. They are found not by turning one's back on the supposed opposite, but by going more deeply into it, by going more deeply into it. That just reminds me of, again of Hegel's eminence in itselfness. He says this tension is creative, generative. although a thing and its opposite are customarily thought of as separate warring entities, they are, I argue, mutually sustaining, inseparable, and intertwined. We can't have heat without cold, brightness without darkness, absolutely. and this is interesting. Bit here where he says the tension is creative, generative. So when we're talking about the tension between opposites, that they exist in this push and pull situation with one another, that the pushing and the pulling is actually creative. It's actually generative. It brings things into being. And what I find interesting is that he 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 uses this in itselfness, this idea of immanence, uh, being in itself, as this creative. Thing this tension that creates, and I think that's interesting because it reminds me of it reminds me of other myths. It reminds me of what Jordan Peterson talks about with the Ouroboros, and it's also connected to the Yin and the Yang symbol. But the idea that um, you've got this serpent swallowing its tail, and the image represents something that has no beginning and no end. It's a circle. Um, its opposites in union, and that that's and that that's creative. So you can think about this. Well, McGilchrist kind of said it already when he was talking about male and female gametes. You know, imagine a man and a woman, you know, opposite sexes coming together. So, what does that make you think of? It makes you think of sex, sexual union, and that's what generative. It's creative when opposites come together. Something is made. Something is made out of that. That's beautiful. All right. All right, he gives an example here. He says, Friction is an interesting example of something that is, in a way, in opposition to movement. But in its absence, movement becomes impossible. So this is, that's interesting, right? Friction, you know, you think about that. You're sliding across the floor in your socks. Um, you, you don't slide forever, right? I love sliding across the floor in my socks. That's why I use that example. i <laughs> uh, way too old to be doing that, but I love it. So, you know, you slide and you come to a stop. Why? Because of friction. Because your feet are rubbing against the ground, the ground is slowing you down, and eventually you come to a stop. So friction is something that is, is contrary to motion. If it wasn't for friction, I just would keep going, right? But then he points out that you actually can't move without friction either. So think about floating around in outer space or something. Uh, I want to put my foot on the ground and push myself forward. I need friction to do that. I'm not doing that in outer space right so you can't have motion without friction and if with too much friction you have no more motion so a great great example of how of how opposites exist like like a united whole and you can't have one without the other and he says resistance can put the brakes on motion or cause motion it can prevent or cause change in itself resistance is neither necessarily good or necessarily bad it's just necessary so so i ask necessary for what apparently apparently for anything to exist or to act at all period and that's that's something that we call being by the way to exist and to act in the world those are the things that we that we mean when we describe being it's the place where we exist and all the things that happen in it. It's interesting. All right, he goes on. He says, he says opposites give rise, uh, give rise to and fulfill one another. Opposites give rise to and fulfill one another. What does he mean by that? Well, what he's already said many times, you can't have one without the other. In fact, there is no meaning. There is no existence of one without the other. So the, some, some idea like the one and the many, you know, uh, that they, they're they opposites. You can't have one without the other. So the moment you have one, you have the other. They give rise to each other. And they also fulfill one another. It's like by definition, right? It, you can't have darkness without light. So, so light doesn't exist without darkness. That's how it fulfills one another. Darkness makes light exist. Light makes darkness exist. They, they fulfill one another, and you can't have one without the other, right? If, if everything was always dark, and there was never any light, ever, period, the word light would have no meaning. It would have, it would have no meaning, and it certainly has no existence. But neither does darkness. You don't know the difference. And then the moment a freaking candle gets lit, then you know darkness and you know light. But only only then you need both. This is the idea. He says, And they are conjoined like the poles of a magnet. You can't have one without the other, but without there being any intervening boundary. That's interesting. He says, They nonetheless remain distinct as opposites. This idea of complementarity is foundational in nature. It is foundational to everything in modern physics, and I would say in morality and in spirituality. So McGilchrist is saying, Look, this idea, opposites, that give rise and fulfill one another, that's everywhere you look, at the very bottom the bedrock of physics, the bedrock of, of, you know, all of the things we care about um, ob- objectively or subjectively, rather. Morality, spirituality, all those things. Then he says this. He says the true whole exists precisely in the tension between parts and an apparent whole. So parts and whole are sort of like opposites in that regard as well, right? I mean, a whole is something that doesn't have parts. It's one thing. Parts are something that make up other things. So you can't, you know, th- these are opposites. Uh, but all, very often, a whole is made up of parts. And you can see there how they, how parts and whole, even though they're opposites on the surface, can exist together. And he says that this is what he calls the true whole. He's like, it exists precisely in this tension between opposites. And I don't exactly know what McGilchrist means when he says the true whole. As if there's a false whole or something, I think what he means by the true whole is understanding what what everything is altogether what what the oneness is and that's and that's God, but it's also reality. So I, I could go off into a big tangent there, but let's not do that. let's push through uh, a couple more. he says, in physics we again have both a combination of order with disorder. And he says, "What's often called the edge of chaos is terribly important. It's the coexistence of order with disorder. And this is an idea from physics that, and Jordan Peterson talks about this all the time as well. Um, that that it's it's the edge of order and chaos, where order and chaos meet. That's where that's where things happen. That's where things are born. That's where the action is. You know, it's that place where the tension is." And McGilchrist says, we need universality and particularity, precision and flexibility, restriction and openness, freedom and constraint, simultaneously. He says, everything flows from the pairing. And then lastly, he says, existence is the conjunction of one with itself as many. One and many. And everything flows from the pairing, Right? One and many are opposites. What does he mean by everything flows from the pairing? Well, something kind of metaphysical. He's saying that you can have this abstract idea of opposites. We'll take this one and many. And the tension between opposites, the tension between one and many, creates everything. Remember, the union of opposites is creative, like sexual union is creative. So when they're they're together, things just pour out of them. You know, what What flows out of them? According to McGilchrist, everything. All right, so McGilchrist pivots, and he starts talking about symmetry and asymmetry. And I, I, this is actually really interesting, and this is part of the part that made me connect it to Hegel, is when we're talking about opposites and tension between opposites, the question might come up, is one side more, more? Than the other, like, is there a symmetry between opposites? Are they exactly even and equal, or is there an asymmetry? Is one side more stronger than the other? Is you know one side smaller than the other? Is one side pushing or pulling harder than the other? Is one side winning the tug of war? You know what I mean? Um, is there an asymmetry there? And I just never, I never thought of that really. But the way he explains it, I mean, I, I'm pretty convinced by it. So let's let's get into it. First thing he says, he he says, perfection can constitute a flaw. Perfection can constitute a flaw. I don't know what comes to your mind. Um, I got a weird a weird thing that comes to my mind. It, it's kind of like a eugenics idea, but it's. Um, if you think about purebred dogs, if you've ever had any experience with purebred dogs, especially inbred dogs, because that's what happens when you want to, you know, oftentimes when you want a pure a pure breed, you're going to end up with some you're going to end up with some inbreeding going on with dogs. That happens just just all the time. Um, so what happens though? You want to get the pure genes. You want to get the perfect, you know, collie or something like that. You you spend big money to get this, uh, f- you know, flawless. Um, genome in your dog, you want it to be the purest of pure Dobermans, you know, what happens with those inbred dogs is they end up getting all sorts of health problems, you know, uh, higher incidences of cancer and all sorts of things, they're just not as healthy, and then, you you know, you get a mutt, and, you, and oftentimes they're, you know, they're much, much healthier, um, hybrid vigor is a word that science in the old days used to use for that, but this is the idea, perfection can constitute a flaw. So if you're trying to perfect the genes of your dog to the point where, you know, it's, it's exactly the way, the way you want it, oftentimes that dog's not going to function. Um, another, another idea comes to mind, and it, it has to do with God. And this is where I want to take this, so I'll give you the example. Um, philosophers, when they talk about God, there's this idea that comes up. Um, it, maybe it's kind of like a thought experiment, but it's something like this. If you think about God as a complete, perfect being... And many people do have that notion. If God is a complete and perfect being, then then he lacks nothing. God lacks nothing. He's complete. But if he lacks nothing, there's always something that he lacks. It's lack itself. Incompleteness, imperfection, that's what God lacks. And that's an interesting argument. Because if God is complete and perfect... Then the thing that he's missing is incompleteness and imperfection. And how can God be missing that when he's God? He's perfect and complete. So, this is, I think, what comes to my mind to illustrate this idea that perfection can constitute a flaw. All right, then he goes on. He says, He says, Union and division are asymmetrical. The principle for division and for union are both needed, but they are needed to be brought together. We need the union. Of union and division, not the division of union and division. That's interesting. We need the union of union and division. That's that's the opposites together. He says, there's also an asymmetry between symmetry and asymmetry. Oh, here we go. Asymmetry is more important than symmetry. Small imbalances, differences among sameness at all levels in nature, make it work. Starting with the initial inequality of matter and antimatter, he says, I'm told by physicists that if there had not been a small inequality between matter and antimatter in the Big Bang, there would have been nothing at all. That's interesting. So if you guys don't know, the idea that when the um, when the Big Bang occurred and all of the energy gets released and, uh, you know, uh, heads out in all directions, um, this is the um, inflation of the universe. That's what they call that. It's just blowing up like a balloon. Um that not all parts of what's what's created, you know, the matter and the antimatter, are equal. And even the inflation of the universe, it's not blowing up like a bubble, like a perfect circle. Some areas are are, are expanding faster than other areas. So there's actually an asymmetry. It's not like, you know, it's the going out in in, in a perfect circle, the same direction all, all the way. It's not like that. And according to according to physics, if it had if it hadn't been that way, then nothing would have been able to exist. So we need places in the universe that cool off. We need places in the universe that have you know, stronger gravity or less gravity. We need certain pockets of, of, of the cosmos um, to, to be different from the rest of the cosmos, to give us these little pockets where th- interesting things can happen. And that only happens when there's an imbalance between one side and the other. There's an asymmetry in opposites. They're not equal exactly. That's interesting. It also goes back to this idea of master and his emissary. If you ask, if you ask McGilchrist, or is the left to right hemisphere um, uh, more important, he would say that they're both necessary, but that the master is more important. And that's what I mean about the asymmetry idea. And even the, even the structure of the brain is asymmetrical, by the way. The left hemisphere and the right hemisphere are not identical. All right, so now that he's brought up the Big Bang, he, he, he brings a couple other quotes in from, from scientists. So the first one is from Louis Pasteur, who you guys probably know, the guy that uh, invented pasteurization. In 1870, Louis Pasteur said, The universe as a whole is asymmetrical. And I've come to believe that life is a function of the asymmetry of the universe. Without any doubt, the basic principles of life are asymmetrical. It is because asymmetric forces of the universe preside over their unfolding. So Louis Pasteur believes that life wouldn't exist if it weren't for this asymmetry in the universe. And the reason the universe is asymmetrical at all is because the forces that preside over it, whatever, that, whatever you want to call that, some might call that God, some might call that you know the, 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 just the forces of nature, they also are asymmetrical. It's interesting. Very interesting. The next one is Pierre, Pierre Curie. So you guys may, may remember Marie Curie, the, the lady who um, is credited with uh, all, the, all the early science on uh, uh, radiation. Um, this is her husband, I believe, also a, uh, a physicist, a, a chemist, I believe, 1894. He said this, Certain elements of symmetry may coexist with certain phenomena, but they are not necessary. What is necessary is that certain elements of symmetry do not exist. It is asymmetry which creates the phenomenon. And you—I mean—you can think about this. It's not really that difficult to understand. You know, if you have something that has a like a particle that has a positive charge and a positive and, and a particle that has a negative charge, and they come together, what happens? You know, if you have. In math, if you have a negative number and an equal positive number, and you put them together, what happens? You, you, end up, you end up with nothing. You don't have a number. You have nothing, right? There has to be an asymmetry there, so that something is left over when they meet. You, you know, there needs to be an asymmetry so that they don't just cancel each other out. That that that's the example that that he uh, he mentioned when he was talking about ma- matter and antimatter being created in the Big Bang. If you guys don't know. Um, antimatter is supposed to be out there somewhere. We don't really have proof of it, I don't think. But it's supposed to be out there in the cosmos, and it's just like all the protons, neutrons, stuff that we're accustomed to. But they just have opposite charges. They're just opposite, completely opposite. And if they ever come together, if they ever meet each other, they, science, scientists believe that they will annihilate, that they'll disappear in a puff of energy. So equal forces, symmetrical forces, they sort of tend to cancel each other out. They, they, they tend to become nothing. This is why he's saying, look, there has to be an asymmetry. And not only does uh, Louis Pasteur and Pierre Curie, but, you know, Ian McGilchrist himself all believe this is absolutely critical to anything and everything. All right, the last one from McGilchrist goes like this. He says, in terms of the hemispheres of the brain, it's once more not asymmetrical, but an asymmetrical arrangement. They need to be preserved together, neither being able to extinguish the other even though they are not of equal value. So this is the idea of the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere, the master and his emissary. They, again, they're necessary. They both have to exist, but they're not symmetrical. The master is greater than the emissary. All right, so while we're talking about master and emissary, let's get back to Hegel. And and. Remember, Hegel describes the experience of being self-conscious as something like being two consciousnesses at the same time, master and bondsman. This is very much like McGilchrist, master and his emissary. And uh, I'll I'll put this in as an aside. Uh, Jordan Peterson once said that there's been experiments where people will have their corpus callosum severed and this is the little part of your brain in the middle that connects the right and the left hemispheres and when this medical procedure is done where they they separate that that corpus callosum they separate the the left hemisphere from the right hemisphere that what happens is human beings in that situation will literally have two consciousnesses you know, it's like the left and right can't communicate anymore, and there's a way in which they sort of have two separate forms of consciousness. And it's very, very strange. Um, and again, with self-consciousness, uh, from from the Hegelian perspective, you've got master and bondsman. So let's get into this. All right, so so Hegel in Phenomenology of Spirit says this. In the first instance, the master is taken to be the essential reality for the servant. Remember, both master and servant are your consciousness. It's just the perspective, whether you're the observer or whether you're the observed. Okay, he says, the master is taken to be the essential reality. So you consider yourself to be more the master, right, the observer. Um, you, You are the essential reality for the servant, the thing that you're observing. Yourself, in that case. Yourself as an object. So you... As the master, are the essential reality of you as the as the as the observer, as the observed rather. It's it's, 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 uh, it's muddy for sure. Um, and he says he says the truth is independent consciousness existing for itself. That, that's the truth. That's what that's what self consciousness is. Um, it's not what it seems to be. And he, what it seems to be is, like, like I said, you, you identify typically with yourself as the master, as the observer. Uh, he's saying that even though that, that's what people tend to believe, the truth is consciousness is not like that. It's actually, it's not, it's, it's actually existing for itself. And then he explains what this is, the state of existing for itself. He says that that's absolute disillusion. Of all its stability into fluent continuity, the ultimate nature of self-consciousness, pure self-referent existence. So I know that's a lot. I'll I'll take a step back here. So this idea of self-consciousness existing for itself, he's saying what that means is a dissolution of all its stability into fluent continuity. So what I would what I would say is all all of the things that are stable. Uh, in your consciousness, are things that are real, actual, you know, the things that you see in the world, um, all of the particularized, individualized things that, that exist, that's all stable to you, concepts and ideas and, and, and matter, all that stuff's stable. And fluent con- continuity, on the other hand, is like putting all that stuff together. It becomes something like what I would call potentiality, which is, that's something that it's just another, another name for God as far as I'm concerned. So the state of existing purely for yourself is something like the dissolving of of all of the individualized, particularized, manifold things into something like potentiality, into something like God. And then he says the ultimate nature of self-consciousness is pure self-referent existence, something that exists for itself and in itself itself. I mean, that's that's a very mystical thing, but a very beautiful thing. It makes me think of Aristotle's prime mover, you know, the unmoved mover. Uh, That's an idea. It's like people will ask, um, you know, how did I get here? And the answer is my parents. And, well, how did my parents get, get here? Their parents. And you can just keep asking that question, and back and back and back you go. And the question is, where does that end? You know, it's self-referent existence. It, where does it end? You know, that, that's a good question. So Hegel goes on to describe how our consciousness is experienced as divided. You know, that's what he means by self-consciousness. We have our, uh, this idea of ourselves as, as observer, but also as observed. So he describes our power to shape and fashion our own being. You know, are are becoming ever more differentiated. He calls that labor. So this is something that I would call experience rather than labor, but I think they mean the same thing. They mean in in both cases something like our unique confrontation with reality. So our experiences are the things that we choose to engage with. You know, the people I meet, the things I do, the experiences I have. You know, it's, it's, it's unique to me. Those are the things I'm doing. Those are the things I want. I'm pursuing my successes, my failures, my choices. And our experience like that with the world, that's going to continue to differentiate us from other people. You know, you, you can see this. You, you take a look at a, a bunch of toddlers, you know, or a bunch of babies, let's say. Babies are basically all the same. with just a couple of little minor differences. And then when they become toddlers, they start to get their own personalities. And then all of a sudden, they're different in ways they never, than they've never were before. And that just keeps getting more and more intense as they get older and more capable. And what's happening here? It's like every one of these babies has a unique set of experiences. And those experiences make them different from one another. That's all I'm saying. That people fashion our own being by experience. We become ever more differentiated. Like we started off just like energy, just like the Big Bang. We started off as something that was all the same, you know? And we become more and more different. All right, he says, thus precisely in labor, where the servant becomes aware through this rediscovery of himself by himself, of having and being a mind of its own. So what Hegel's saying here is that existing within ourselves... It provides the illusion that we are distinct from our experience, because if we're existing within ourselves, what we're experiencing is ourself. But the but the experience that that experience you know that's just like living, that's being, that's our, our subjective uh, life. That that experience makes us believe we are a mind of our own. By that he means that we're separate from. The, from the place we find ourselves, we're separate from. Well, again, he, he says we consciousness exists in itself, and we here we are in ourselves, having experiences and thinking that those experiences are are from something outside of ourselves. And Hegel's pointing out that's nonsense. Consciousness exists in itself. What it's what it it experiences is itself. And somehow that experience gives us the the illusion that we are different, that we're distinct, that we have a mind of our own. He goes on, he says, Having a mind of its own is a type of freedom which does not get beyond the attitude of the servant. And that's interesting. I mean, again, we, we tend to identify, we want to identify ourselves with the master, with the observer part of our consciousness. But that part doesn't have a mind of its own. That's interesting. He's saying the mind of its own stuff is only, is only applicable to the servant type of consciousness, the object type of consciousness. That when you realize the object and the subject are actually one thing, this idea of having a mind of its own is, doesn't make any sense. It, it has no meaning. All right, he goes on. He says, reason is Spirit. I remember what I said before, a spirit just means consciousness. So he says, reason is spirit and is consciously aware of itself as its own world and of the world as itself. So consciousness is aware of itself as the world and the world as itself. I mean, I don't think a more mystic sentence has ever been spoken. And I've said that many times. There is no difference between consciousness and the material and material reality. That those things are one. All right, he goes on. He says, when reason observes the pure unity of ego and existence, the unity of subjectivity and objectivity. This unity has the character of being. All right. So that was. One of my favorite quotes, and actually one of the most difficult to understand. I, I think Hegel really did a disservice in the way he, the way he wrote. You know, the way they did back then. And when he says that, when reason observes the pure unity of ego and existence, what he's saying here: ego is is self. You know, ego is the master consciousness, and existence is everything else. All of the, all of the things that you experience. That when consciousness understands that the observer and the things that are being observed are one thing. That has the character of being. What does he mean by that? That has the character of being. What, what he means is that that is being. So this is, this goes back to a quote that I, that I like to end my podcast on from time to time, which which is that we are the experience God is having. That is what I think he's saying here. That when consciousness realizes... That itself and existence are the same thing. That subject and object are the same thing. That that experience is being. What is being? Remember, being is material reality, the cosmos. Not a, there's a way. There's a way in which that's true, but uh, but it's really it's our experience of it. It's our experience of of the cosmos. I mean. It's mind-blowing. It's saying that the unity of consciousness with itself, these, whatever those opposing forces are that make it up, that, that their experience of one another is material reality, space and time and everything in it and you and I included. Whew. Unbelievable. All right, then he goes on. He says, the self-contained and self-sufficient reality, which is at once aware of being actual in the form of consciousness, and presents itself to itself, is spirit. It's just another way of talking about consciousness. Consciousness is is something that's simultaneously aware that it exists, so it's conscious. And it also presents itself to itself. What does that mean? It means that it makes itself known to itself. What does that mean? It has something to do with experience. How else do you know anything? By experiencing it, so consciousness knows what it is. It fulfills itself by by experiencing itself. Pattern within a pattern, <laughs> amazing. And I, I I would just say like, you you can think about that idea of of God becoming the cosmos and creatures existing within that cosmos that that have consciousness that understand and recognize their own existence and the place that they're in. What is that? What is that? Another way of saying that is God experiencing itself. Consciousness being conscious. It's unbelievable. It's simple, it's beautiful, and it's hard to understand. All right, he says, just because this, this substance is a being resolved in the self... It is not a lifeless essence, but real and alive. Okay, so I'm going to stop there for a second. All right, just because this substance is a being resolved in itself. So he's saying here that substance, you know, material reality, that substance exists within consciousness. And he's like, that doesn't mean that it's dead. That doesn't mean that it's like, hey, this is what the essence of consciousness is, the stuff in it. No, that's it's, it's not, not what he means at all. He says that the substance that's, that's within consciousness is real and alive. Consciousness within consciousness. You know, as above, so below. Um, you might think about that like the cells in your body. You know, they're alive. They're alive. You, you can take the cells out of your body and put them on a Petri dish. As long as they have nutrients, they're going to continue to live. You know, they're alive all by themselves, but they make up your, the greater being of your body. So you're alive on this macro level. You're alive in your body, but all these little components that make up your body are alive themselves within you. Like Hegel said, they are real and alive. And again, if consciousness, you can think about you and I, existing within consciousness, we'll call that the cosmos, we're, we're alive within consciousness. Consciousness within consciousness Just like the cells of our body Are alive within the greater being of our body Something like that Then he says Spirit is thus the self-supporting Absolutely real Ultimate being Spirit is consciousness Okay, Consciousness is the self-supporting Absolutely real Ultimate being And then he says All the modes of consciousness Are abstractions from it they are constituted by the fact that spirit analyzes itself, distinguishing its moments, and halts at each individual mode in turn. All right, so I have to stop there for a second, because there's a lot there. But he's saying, when he says all other modes of consciousness are abstractions from it, he means he means consciousness, you know, with a capital C. And what does he mean by all other modes? He's talking about The substance that's within consciousness, where, where the individuality comes from, where the particularity comes from. You know, the things that are in that are within consciousness are finite somehow. They are different from one another somehow. And at the same time, they're one thing. And so in their individuality and in their particularity, they exist within the oneness, within the wholeness, you know like you and I are individual distinct things living, existing within this cosmos, something like that. And I think this is a description, like, how do we get many out of one? You know, many, that's what he's calling modes of consciousness, different types of consciousness, different types of things that exist within consciousness. How do we get there? How do we get many from the one? And this is, again, This is the tension between those opposites, between one and many that are generative. What's being generated are all these, what Hegel calls modes of consciousness. A panpsychist like Philip Goff would say something like, those modes of consciousness are, you know, different states of consciousness, different ways that it manifests itself. Maybe that's as energy, maybe that's as different types of particles, maybe it's it's as different types of elements, different types of chemicals, you know, different types of compounds. Um all these different these different things that we see from again from the oneness from that thing we where we all started, that pure energy or whatever you want to call it um then he says this isolation of modes only exists within spirit, which is existence, I mean what a thing to say. So he's saying, when he says the isolation of modes of existence, he's saying the fact that things exist as differentiated, as unique, particular things at all. Because ultimately it all boils down to, they all go back to energy, right? They all all come back to the same exact thing. How did they get different when they started out the same? He's saying that only happens within spirit, within consciousness. And then he says, cherry on top, which is existence, so the many, the multiplicity of the world, that exists in consciousness. And what consciousness is, is existence. Amazing. Amazing. And so mystical. Alright, last quote from, uh, from Hegel this time. He says, Spirit is thus consciousness in general, which holds fast by the moment of being a, a reality objective to itself. And an abstraction eliminates the fact that this reality is its own self-existence. When again it holds fast by the other abstract moment produced by analysis, the fact that its object is its own self, and thus is self-consciousness. So I want to come back to this for a second, because we we saw it in the last paragraph too. This idea of... Uh, here, let me, let me find it. Um, oh, yeah, so it said... Uh, It said in the last quote, they are constituted by the fact that spirit analyzes itself and distinguishes its moments. So, well, let's get back to that because that's important. When it says spirit analyzes itself, this is the idea of consciousness as observer and as observed. When you analyze yourself and you distinguish your moments, what he means by that is the moments when you were the observer observing yourself and the moments when you were being observed, when you were the thing being observed, and that both of those things are happening at the same time. And what consciousness does, he says, is it halts at each individual mode in turn. So consciousness becomes these, these, uh, the, the varying versions of itself. It becomes observed, it becomes observer, and vice versa. So the idea And then this this next quote That uh, I, again, I'll read partly again where It says when again it holds fast By the other abstract moment Produced by analysis What that means is that moment When the observing self becomes the object You know when the observer Becomes the observed or vice versa And he says that is Self consciousness And that may seem like a very straightforward thing to say, but the idea, because it, because it accords with our experience, because we do, because we do, feel that way, that we are simultaneously the observer in the world, the thing that sees th- from behind our eyes, but we're also the observed. We're also the thing that knows that we are. You know, so we're both s- subject and, and object, and that that fact, the fact of our the way that we are the being self-conscious, that that's exactly what that means. It's it's beautiful. So when I think about all this, when I think about all this, I think that there's an objection that some people might make. You know, they're going to say something like, you know, Chris, you've unfairly conflated Hegel's description of self-consciousness and McGilchrist's description of the creative tension of opposites to kind of your own ideas about the relationship between God and and material reality. Um, So so people might say, look, you're you're jumping to conclusions here. It's it's one thing to say that, that consciousness, because a lot of people think that comes from our brain somehow, that that would be structured the same way that the hemispheres of the brain are structured you know split up into 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 opposites and having this tension between the two like you would expect to see that right because consciousness flows out of the brain and that's how the brain is structured so don't you think consciousness would be structured that way and i think that that's the objection that i can imagine somebody bringing up so it's something like you know of course my intuitions about reality are divided and yet in union Kind of the same my picture of tension of opposites, because that's how my brain's structured. So how could I how could I expect to think to think up any other thing about God if I'm thinking about God and and and, and material reality and trying to figure out what the relationship is? How am I going to come up with anything other than this idea of the tension between opposites? Because that's how my brain's functioning. Don't you think it's going to be connected somehow to, the, to my ideas? And I you know that maybe there's an argument there. I don't know. I don't know enough about it to say, but I would would point to something else. I would say that we see division and unity, multiplicity and oneness, at the bedrock of reality. Not because it flows from a similarly structured brain, but rather because the structure of the brain is a fractal representation of the structure of reality. Uh, There's a guy that's been on uh, Jordan Peterson's podcast a few times lately. His name is Jonathan Paggeau, P-A-G-E-A-U. He put it this way in describing the evolution of life on Earth. He said, The evolutionary process is a reflection of a deeper pattern, which is a cosmic pattern of how the world actually unfolds. And this is what I mean when I'm trying to describe this fractal representation of reality. You see, the brain functions in the tension between one and many, the tension between opposites, because reality does, not the other way around. The structure of the brain is a function of the structure of reality, not the other way around. And this argument, I think, is much stronger as it's supported by many, many other examples of this fundamental fractal relationship. As McGilchrist so eloquently described, we see it in physics, in the tension between energy and mass, between planets and stars, between harp strings and lyres, and in the very laws of motion. Do they, accord, <clears throat> do they accord too with this foundational structure because of how our brains are put together? I think not. It is rather that the structure of our brains conform to the same universal pattern Upon which everything rests. Now let's take up the notion of asymmetry that McGilchrist attaches to this idea of opposites. You know, they're not, they're not equal exactly. And that's important. If we take this Hegelian, uh, if we take this in Hegelian terms, the components of self-consciousness, remember the master and bondsman, while existing as and constituting a complete whole also must be somehow asymmetrical or unequal. They are both consciousness, but one is master, and therefore holds more of itself, let's say, than the bondsman. If we consider this from my own mystic perspective, it it makes perfect sense. For me, you see, God is Hegel's master, Jung's collective unconscious, or Jordan Peterson's Ouroboros. And therefore greater, deeper, and infinitely more potent than the bondsman, ego, or self. Of course, there is asymmetry between God and material reality. There is more to an infinite God than to a finite world. But together, we constitute a complete whole in perpetual complementarity. And just as it is in physics, that the Big Bang would have been impossible without an asymmetry between matter and antimatter, an asymmetry in the inflation of the cosmos, etc. The asymmetry between God and creation, between consciousness and its self-experience, is perhaps necessary for being. And here again we see what Hegel calls eminence, or in-itselfness, what I have called the fractal nature of reality we can see the same pattern repeating within our psyche and everywhere in the world around us. It is the repeating pattern of opposites as a complementary whole, coexisting and self-referential, self-contained, self-created, and immortal. As Hegel put it, the spirit, in its simple truth, is consciousness and breaks asunder its elements from one another. An act Divides spirit into substance on the one side and consciousness of the substance on the other. The substance contrasts with itself as particularized reality. That's the one contrasted with the many, God contrasted with material reality. These are intention. These opposites are intention, God and material reality. Amazing. But just what exactly is the act, Hegel? So Hegel says, an act divides spirit into substance and consciousness. What is the act, Hegel, which divides consciousness into substance, material reality, and consciousness? Well, Hegel answers that. He says, the mediating term, infinite in character, is self-consciousness, which being the unity of itself and that substance Unites the general nature and its particular realization. Amazing. So consciousness becomes substance. That's matter and energy. And consciousness, awareness of that. And what is being? It's, it's the combination of the two. What are you? You're a, you're a material being made of substance. Yet you're filled with consciousness. It's amazing, amazing. And you're a particular person. You know, you're different from everybody else. You're your own thing, your own form of consciousness, unique from everyone else. And yet we all roll right back up to the whole, the oneness. Amazing. All right, last question. Lastly, just how is the infinite and undifferentiated Hegelian spirit that we call consciousness United with its finite particular realizations. How do these opposites come together to be the whole that they are? Through experience. Consciousness experiencing itself as the world. As the world and yet in the world. A pattern that recognizes itself through experiencing its own opposite. Which, as it turns out, is and has been itself all along.
0: Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work